Gentlemen, welcome back to the Liberation Mentor Show. I'm your host, Nick Gregoratis, speaking to you from my studio in Los Angeles. Today's episode is a different one to usual. It's not me conducting an interview. This is the audio from a show called The Art of Skill, which is run by a gentleman named Rick Ellis. I recently appeared as a guest on The Art of Skill, and it was such a fun conversation that I decided to upload it and release it as an episode of the Liberation Mental Podcast. Hope you guys enjoy it. Here's the episode. Nick Gregoriadis is in the house. Good to see you, Nick. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. I've heard so many good things about you and your work, so it was a no-brainer for me. Oh, well, thank you so much. You know, it's funny. You and I run in a lot of the same circles. I have known you about you for over a decade and if we were to make a Venn diagram of our respective uh, groups that we operate in, there's this overlap. And yet, I've never trained with you. I've never spoken to you. So this is a pleasure for me to finally close that loop. I just want to say I never slept with any of those girls. <laughs> well, the paternity tests are forthcoming. <laughs> and, and they will tell the real story. <laughs> so... Um, one of the reasons why I'm thrilled to have you as a guest today is because one of my goals for this podcast specifically and for my channel generally is to go beyond jujitsu into the realm of um, human performance, human excellence, right? And which can take many forms. There's a physical component, a mental component, an emotional component. And you represent kind of a crossover athlete, if you will. You're a crossover artist. You started as a pop star and now you're a jazz artist. <laughs> so you are most known in the world of jujitsu as a phenomenal athlete, a phenomenal coach. Uh, you are Roger Gracie's first black belt, which is pretty cool. And, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. But that's not the totality of who you are. You are moving into other realms. Um, and, and again, it, it's, it's, um, you know, you're sort of the prototype of who I would like to see on this program, someone who has a, a lot to bring in various realms. So uh, I, I appreciate that. And, um, let's see if we can milk that today. Yeah. Thank you for recognizing that, Rick. It's, um, you know, I, I Becoming good at jiu-jitsu and building my credentials in jiu-jitsu was something I, um, it was so important to me and I'm, I'm so extraordinarily grateful for the career that I've had in jiu-jitsu, but uh, it has been kind of difficult because you get pigeonholed when you're very good at one thing. And uh, it, uh, funnily enough, one of the guests on my podcast uh, just recently, he said, you know, it's okay to be good at, at several things, you know, and, and I'm I'm, I'm good at other things too. So it's, it's nice yeah. to be able to flex those, um, those skills and, and also to be recognized for that. So yeah, I appreciate being it. Being multidimensional, so I, I, I have a variety of interests and, and, uh, I tend to be a little bit OCD. I tend to get into things and, and want to go really deep. And, uh, are you OCD? Do you, do you have that tendency? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I had to laugh when uh, you said that because I'm, I'm a Virgo and, you know, I, I'm not completely sold on astrology, but there definitely are. When you look at the list of Virgo characteristics, there's definitely some um, some accuracy to to that. When it when it comes to the way I move through the world, I'm uh, 
I don't really like OCD because I don't think it's a compulsion. I, I choose to be exceptionally detail-oriented and orderly. I, it's something I can turn off. And it's actually, I think OC, with OCD people, it's, it's probably hard to not do it. For me, it's hard to do it. I have to train myself to be uh, incredibly particular and neat and tidy. And it's not something I'm willing to give up because I've seen the many benefits that come when you... Um, when yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I, you know, I wouldn't say I'm clinically OCD, far, far from it. But what happens is, is this pattern where when I find something that I develop an interest in, it just becomes this insatiable urge to see how deep I can go with it. So it's very selective. And uh, I, can I, I wouldn't say I can turn it off, but it's, the impulse is very turned off during those times in my life where I don't have that thing that I'm particularly interested in. I can be real lazy at times, but when that that thing catches my attention, I get very, very into that. So it sounds like you maybe have some of those traits as well, or maybe you're, um, you selectively channel that in directions that uh, will, will improve you, perhaps. Mm -hmm. It sounds like uh, when, you describe, when you describe that, the, the words that came to my mind were curiosity and passion. Uh, and it sounds like that's what happens is you, you get, you find a, f a domain or a field of study that ignites your curiosity and passion. And uh, I think that's, funny enough, that's something that's, I believe, missing with, for a lot of men in the modern world is they don't have passions anymore, right? Uh, they're too busy watching TV or working or fulfilling a role that society has told them they should fulfill. And... I really believe a life that's lived dispassionately is, uh, is hardly any life at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100%. And I love that word curiosity. Um, I got profiled, this is many years ago, I was profiled in a computer magazine. I'm a recovering programmer. I'm recovering from a lot of things in life. I'm a recovering musician. I'm a recovering, <laughs> you know, which obsessions from the past, right? But um, at one time I was... Uh, pretty deep in, in the world of programming. And I, I got profiled in a computer magazine and they asked me, what is the most important trait to have as a programmer? And I said, curiosity. You have to have this insatiable curiosity to find the solution, the most elegant solution, the best solution to that thing that, that you're working mm. on. So I, I love that word. And um, it pleases me mm. tremendously that you used it because it's near and dear to my heart. Yeah. So uh, one of the things I am very fond of saying, you know, we all, all of us just spout quotes that we've been influenced by, right? But very few, we, we generally have very few original quotes of our own. And one of the only, one of my only original ones is wherever there is truth, wherever there is overlap, there is truth. And funnily enough, I just mentioned that on my previous, I, I recorded an episode of my podcast earlier today. And, uh, I, the, the guest was talking about something which overlapped with my experience. So I realized there must be truth there. And when you mentioned that when you were a programmer, they mentioned to you, or that someone said to you that curiosity was the most important or one of the most important character, characteristics. Uh, in my work as a coach, one of my coaching mentors said to me that curiosity is one of the most Im important characteristics of a good coach, because that's how you figure out how to get the most out of you know, your client or your athlete or, or whatever, you have to ask the right questions and you have to be curious about them. So there's, there's definitely some truth to what you've just said. Yeah, I think you, you'd be a pretty crappy coach if you don't have a fundamental interest in that 
in the thing that you're coaching. And you'd be a pretty crappy human being if you didn't have, have a fundamental curiosity about the nature of the world and the human yeah. experience. Well, so many, so many people don't, and, and it's a problem. Uh, and it sounds like you're, you're attempting in your, in your small area of the world to rectify that to the extent that you can. So that's a really noble pursuit. Um, let's, let, let's, let's, um, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves I feel, in this conversation. I want to get, just take a step backwards and hear a little bit about your story just for, for my viewers who, um, you know, it's hard to believe that people don't know about you or who you are, or your history, but there are probably a few out there. So let's just, um, maybe, maybe take a quick walk through memory lane and tell me your story. You're from South Africa originally. I think you discovered judo as a young man, and that led to martial arts. But at some point, you ended up in London training with, with Hodger Gracie. So just tell me that story. Yeah, I mean, you, you got the first part pretty pretty down. Uh, I grew up in Cape Town, which is a city right at the tip of South Africa. Literally, it's at the bottom of Africa. You can't get mm -hmm. any lower. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was growing up, I always used to think of it as the ass end of, of nowhere because I felt so <laughs> isolated down there. I, that's one of the reasons I love I love um, living in America is because they make great they make sailboats down there, great catamarans. So they really do. That I do know. Uh, yeah, they make a lot of good stuff down there. Uh, that made me. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, when you're when you're young and you live in a place like that, you see the the world right, and it's happening somewhere else. It's happening out there. It's happening in Europe, or in my case in particular, everything that I was consuming, like all the media that I was growing up on was all coming from America, right? Like the music and video games and books and movies, it was all coming from America. So like, I just wanted to get out of there. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I couldn't, it was, it's pretty hard to get into America. You know, you can't just arrive here and want to live here. Um, so the next best thing was because I had a European, a European passport, I could go live uh, and work in England. So I, I decided, like, you know, I was like, it's time to get out of here. It's time to expand. And um, I moved to England. And uh, at that point, I'd been training a little bit of um, grappling in South Africa. And I was making some progress. And uh, I wanted to continue training in martial arts. So a friend of mine had been training at Rogers Academy. And he suggested that I, I come check it out. And um, I did. And then over the next several years, I, I just spent... Um, I was just very consumed by this goal of becoming a jiu-jitsu instructor and getting a black belt and just going, as, like you said, as far as I could into that thing or as deep as I could into that thing. And um, I built a pretty good following and a pretty good career in, in the jiu-jitsu industry. And uh, a few years ago, I started to feel that itch to expand, you know, because for me, jiu-jitsu is you know, there comes a point with a lot of guys as they get lost in it. And they think it's everything. They think it's the beginning and the end of life. And uh, I think it's an incredible aspect of life. It's one of the ones I love the most. And it's brought me so many good things. But I also know that it's just an aspect of life. And there are several aspects of life that I am interested in and that I want to excel at and that I want to help people with. So um, a few years ago, I started to, to branch out. I started um, my mentoring um, business and uh, my, I started converting my podcast. I had a jiu-jitsu focused podcast. I converted it into more of a, a men's personal development podcast. And um, that has been one of my primary focuses for the last uh, uh, almost three years now. 
and, and, and you're right, jujitsu is, it's an incredible microcosm of life. It, in some ways, it's a proxy for life, but, it, but it's not life. It's not the totality uh, of life. There's so many lessons that you can take from jujitsu, and it's, it's so deep. Um, but ultimately, there's a real world out there. <laughs> there. There's a real life out there. Sure. It's just like I liken it to a, a video game, right? If you, it's not just with jujitsu; it's with anything. I mean, some people get lost in sex, some people get lost in religion, some people get lost in their work, right? But we're in this, what I believe to be a simulation of sorts, and there's so many aspects to it. There's so much to see and do. There's, there's so much we don't know that I think you miss, you miss the point if you, the, the matrix has you if you get caught in one thing, right? And uh, that's not the way I want to. I want to live my life. I want to live a, a, a well-rounded, um, full, rich experience. You know, one of my greatest uh, and jujitsu jiu is part of that. You know, probably my greatest um, lament or sadness. Because I'm a little older than you, is that life goes by fast, and there is so much to do. There's so much to explore. Yeah. There's so much to experience. And I have barely scratched the surface and yet I'm entering the autumn of my life. <laughs> so time's running out. You can see the stuff you missed on the next go wrong. Right? Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> ho ho yeah. Ho hopefully so. So how was, um, when you trained with, 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 with Hodger, was he teaching most of the classes in those days? Uh, no, he was teaching about... I'd say probably about a third of them, mm -hmm. or 40% of them. Um, and I mean, to be honest, uh, Rick, at that point, like before you know what you don't know, you don't really know how, what, yeah. what you're being exposed to. You know, you could, we could all meet people who, you know, you could meet someone who is the best horse rider in the world. And if you don't know anything about horse riding, it right. doesn't really mean that much to you. It's not a great analogy because I did right. have an understanding of grappling when I met him, but it's, it's only now as someone who's been doing it for 20 years, right? Professionally that I can really have an appreciation when I go roll with them and I realize it's just, yeah, it is a different level. It's a different level. It's a different, it, it is, it's different. What do you think that is, that difference? Is it a different thought process? Does he have just a different sort of neural network in his mind that he's able to make connections in different ways? Is there a, um, was it his early life experiences? I mean, where does that come from? Where does that excellence do you think come from? When I think of Roger, I think of this perfect storm of variables and attributes that had to come together, right? Like mm -hmm. the first one is his physical attributes. The guy, one of, our, one of um, his black belts and I were chatting once and he said, it's like Roger was made in a lab to do jujitsu, right? And it is, he's like tall and lanky with broad shoulders and he's got big strong legs and he's just got long limbs and he, he's just literally, you could not design a jujitsu athlete better then if you were, you know, it's funny you, you say to. that. It's funny you say that because uh, Roy, our good friend, Roy Dean, uh, his first black belt, a guy named Donald. Um, I sometimes I, I called him Roger Jr. Because he he had that prototype. He was just yeah. had that physical makeup that is just innate. He was just built this way. And I can just imagine with Roger, that was just uh, it was no. I mean, yeah, his his phenotype was literally perfect for 
perfect for jiu-jitsu. And then uh, I asked one of the guys, one of his early training partners from Brazil once, I said, why, why is Roger so much better than everyone? And he said, well, from a young age, they gave him more attention. They were like, this guy is going to be one of the champions of the family. And they've spent extra attention correcting his technique. And that ties into the fact that he's tra- he was training from a very young age. And you know the phenomenon during this. There's two times in life. It's during, uh, I could be wrong. I think it's between the ages of four and six. And then the second phase is during puberty, which... Um, during those two phases, your the organism is is rapidly learning and rapidly evolving and, and a sponge, right, for for anything. So if anything you focus on during those times, for me during puberty, I was focusing on reading. So I became a prolific reader, and I'm I'm good at reading and assimilating information through the written word. For Roger, he was in the gym wrestling with bigger, stronger adults, right, during during that time. Um, so that's the second factor. The third is. Uh, He's got a very, very good mindset. Like he's, he's very Zen. He's very focused and centered. And I think that's, that's probably the most important of the three is he's got a, a very powerful mind in that particular context. So they all came together, right? It all came together. It was the, the perfect, you spoke of Venn diagram. So it was the, the perfect nexus point of all these different things. And I don't think we'll ever see it again. I, I think it's, it's one of those once in, in several generations, like, the modern guys, there's a lot of good modern guys, but but none of them are like him and none of them will be like him. Yeah. Yeah, that's very special for you to get that experience. And it's interesting that you say that sometimes you don't appreciate the fullness of what you have because you don't know what you don't know. Dunning-Kruger, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and that's a continuum, right? The more you know, the more the more you get glimpses into the reality uh, that, that you were, it wasn't even perceptive. You couldn't even yeah. perceive it prior, prior to that. I always say um, it's one of the best days in a person's life when they realize they're not as smart as they think they are. <laughs> you know, and that's something I want to actually touch upon. And I'm, I just, I'm trying to resist the urge to keep leaping ahead because, you know, with your men's coaching, um, you know, the recognition the truth of, of ourselves. But I want to get to that in a minute because that's a, that's near and dear to my heart. And it's very powerful. I think that, so let's keep moving the story forward here. At some point you started becoming a world traveler, uh, doing seminars. I assume you were sustaining yourself through opportunities to teach around the world. Uh, and then at some point you ended up in the Amazon doing ayahuasca. So I'm curious that whole chapter, <laughs> Yeah, the, the ayahuasca was actually the thing that precipitated the traveling. I um, I went to the Amazon and, and did ayahuasca many years ago, before it was cool. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I, something just just drove me to do this. And I had, I always say that my life is divided into to two phases. And I guess now it's divided into three phases because I went through another profound experience recently. But those first two phases, it was before ayahuasca in the jungle and after ayahuasca, and specifically before the one uh, particular ceremony. That ceremony was a, a very illuminating, uh, powerful, doesn't even begin to describe it. It was, it was life-changing. Uh, and when I got back from the Amazon, got back to England, I was just 
I was just no longer on that frequency. I just, London just didn't, it just didn't work for me anymore. I just couldn't, I just couldn't get in the flow of life there. So I, I said, fuck it. I've got money coming in from, a, I had an online business. I could teach jiu-jitsu. I had a good, good name in jiu-jitsu. And I was just like, I'm, I'm going to go spend a little bit traveling. And I did. I spent almost five years traveling the world, teaching jiu-jitsu. I was studying yoga a lot. Um, I was partying quite a bit, to be, to be honest. Uh, and just, yeah, it was a, a magical, magical time in my life. And it was very formative for me. I've known quite a few people that have done ayahuasca. I, I, I never have. And all of them have had kind of a profound shift in their psyche, their direction, etc. cetera. Uh, I've done mushrooms I mean, back in the day. And, you know, sometimes there's some epiphanies. There's a, you know, we get locked into patterns, mental patterns, uh, physical patterns. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, it prevents us from seeing other pathways and sometimes something can open through those experiences and it lets you see something that was literally invisible to you or make mm -hmm. epiphanies and realizations. I had some realizations about some of my relationships. I had some realizations I remember that were very powerful at the time that to this day, it, it has kind of changed some things. So I can only imagine that ayahuasca would be, mushrooms time times 50. Um, and, and again, I've, I've never done it. It terrifies me a little bit for, for some other reasons, but so tell me what, what is the nature of that? Do you think, is it just, it opens pathways in your mind? How, how does it? Yeah. It's while you were describing, I was thinking I'm, I'm going to struggle to beat his description of it because that was literally a perfect description of, of one of the things that it does. I mean, it, it uh, Oh. <laughs> I can't really improve upon, on, upon what you've just described. Um, you know, that's one way to look at it. Another way is that it, it opens a doorway into, I've never been able to figure out if it's just your subconscious or if it's the infinite, right? Like I go back and forth. Sometimes I think, you know, everything that I see on ayahuasca is just something that was already in me. And then other times I think, no, you know, you, you, you've been giving this portal, you've been given this portal to a, a different dimension or the other side. I call and, it the and other that's side. What, what scares me um, a little bit is because I've, uh, you know, you had a conversation with Aubrey Marcus and he talks about, he was speaking to what he calls the source. Now, what is the source? Is it God? Is it Satan? Is it a demon? Is it the, the programmer, uh, of the simulation, you know? <laughs> and, and, and so, right. And, yeah. you know, as humans, we have such finite senses. We have eyes, but those eyes can only see a very small spectrum of light. We have ears that can hear a very small spectrum of sound. Mm -hmm. And and are these the only senses? Certainly not. And so part of my trepidation is, are you opening up portals into something that maybe we shouldn't be dabbling in? So I have that uh, simultaneous curiosity and, and trepidation. So. Mm. And, uh, you know, I've had the same thing and I still to this day, after almost 30 ayahuasca ceremonies, I have the same trepidation, uh, which I believe is a, is a result of a combination of a couple of things. Firstly, it's it's the very pervasive and effective job that the war on drugs did to demonize any the use of any substance. Right. They, they 
So now doing something like ayahuasca is, is put in the same category as sniffing cocaine off a toilet seat, right? It's drugs. It's yeah. drugs. Well, they've done a good job of demonizing anything that isn't FDA approved. And, you know, that's a, that's a whole that's a whole other subject. Exactly. Because right. we are drugging ourselves to death yeah. uh, in the modern world. But but anyway, go on. Absolutely. Yeah. And well, and it's also, you know, uh, what, what gets what takes me beyond that is this understanding that as human beings, we have used substances to to change our consciousness for millennia. It's, it's something that we only, it's only in recent memory that we stopped doing that, right? But all the way up until even, you know, the, the 18th century, we, we were using entheogens and we were using things to change our cons consciousness and commune with our ancestors or God or, you know, this deeper part of yourself or whatever you want to call it. And so when I remember that, I, that soothes me and switches off that circuit that was installed by religion and by the war on drugs. And I realize I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just doing something that we have, we as humans have been doing forever. Right. Uh, and I can tell you, Rick, that some of the most joyful experiences, some of the most connecting experiences, some of the most illuminating experiences, or most of the most joyful, illuminating, connecting experiences, have come through doing ceremonies with ayahuasca or mushrooms or other psychedelics and having my friends involved. You know, there's a, there's a sense of connection and a sense of, yeah, you know, it's, everything's going to be okay. We're all together. We're all, we're all in this together. You know, this, this connection that I haven't gotten from many other things. Like there's a couple other things that take me close, yeah. but I'm not prepared to give that up. You know, I'm not prepared to give that up. And maybe one day if ayahuasca stops doing that, I'll, I'll step away from it. But yeah, it, it's then, a fascinating realm. And I don't want to go too deep into that because we could spend the next two hours talking about nothing but that. Uh, but it, but it, it is a fascinating realm. Um, you know, some people think that the human race has made technological leaps at times through these substances and that sort of thing. But that's that's a deep rabbit hole that maybe we shouldn't go down today. <laughs> we'll have to have another conversation one of these days. <laughs> um, so let's turn the corner to sure. men's coaching because there's a lot there that I'd love to unpack, um, you know, as a man myself, as someone who's been on my own journey, um, you know, tell me how that began. And you, you know, obviously you are a very empathic person uh, what are the traits that you have that you think pulled you into that? So some of my, my earliest memories are of superheroes, in particular Spider-Man and, and He-Man, right? Like I've always been drawn to this, this ideal of, or this ideal represented of what it is to be a man, right? Like I've always wanted to, to be a man. Like my dad was a, super alpha kind of Lothario kind of, you know, alpha male charismatic kind of dude. And, uh, you know, like he was, he had this tough guy image that was the, the older I get, the more I see it was a kind of a, a front that was protecting him from a lot of stuff. And I've always been driven or, or drawn towards, you know, like I want to be a man. I want to be a man. Like I want to be the best man I can be. And I think culture and society does that. I mean, 
like you watch enough He-Man and G.I. Joe and stuff like that when you're a kid, obviously you're going to think like, oh, I want to be a tough guy, right? And I think that that's largely uh, what drew me to the martial arts path is like I wanted to prove that I was a tough guy. You know, I wanted to show like I'm a, I'm a man. And I subsequently found out that, that that isn't the whole picture, right? Like your physical prowess and your ability to, you know, attract women and make money and all those things. It's, it's yeah, they are certain. We could take those as yardsticks for certain types of masculinity, but it's not the whole picture. And, you know, the, the deeper I go, the more I realize that uh, there's more to it and that, that being a man is, is multifaceted and uh, it's fucking difficult and challenging in today's world. It's difficult, man. It's difficult because of the messages we're presented and because there's also, uh, I mean, I don't know how deep you want to go on this, but like, there's a there's a pushback against masculinity in the modern world. That was right? it's funny you say that because I, that was the the thing that immediately jumped to my mind when you're speaking now is that there has been a feminine feminization uh, of men over the past I don't know thirty forty years. And listen, women are beautiful and and they offer a lot, but you see this. Um, and it, it can take many forms throughout society. Look at how we educate our young boys. They're expected to sit in the classroom as docile creatures with their hands folded for six hours a day. Uh, when in reality, young boys are wild monkeys and we take away all of the ways that they can be wild monkeys. They can't play dodgeball. Uh, the boys that can't be docile and sit in the classroom, we proclaim that they have ADD and we medicate them. And so, and that's just one, one way. I mean, there are many areas in society, whether it's high divorce rates, a lot of boys being raised by, by mothers, which was me. Um, and, uh, you know, that's interesting. But, and again, women are wonderful and they bring certain things, certain attributes to bear, but it isn't the totality. There's a, there's a duality there that the masculine side brings that is, I think, very much in today's society being just, just stamped down. And I don't know if that's your perspective, uh, but that's certainly how I see yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's my perspective. I mean, I try not to swing too far. Like sometimes I'm like, you know, we've got to resist this gynocentric oppression. And then other times I, I see their point. I see like how yeah. You know, right. sometimes men do need to soften a little bit. Sometimes, not always, right? But I, I really think it's swung too far in the one to the one side of the spectrum. And, uh, you know, I, I keep in mind that human beings are dualistic by their very nature. Physiologically, we all have, or not physiologically, energetically, we all have a male and feminine component, right? And we just express physiologically either the feminine or the masculine, or sometimes in the modern world, yeah. a combination of both, right? Like you're seeing this, in, this um, tendency towards androgyny, uh, which, right. you know, I don't really have any, any judgments on that. I just, I know that I'm a man, right? And I, I express right. masculinity predominantly, and I look for women that express femininity predominantly. Uh, and I think that this idea that right. we are all the same, that's what... I think that's the great lie of feminism is that men and women are equal, right? That's, that's a lie. We're not equal. Equal means right. the same and we're not the same. We are, I believe, of equal value. Yeah. 
but we are not yeah. the same. We are almost different species, right. right? Like men think differently to women, right? Women have completely different bodies. Men have things that they are generally better at than women, and women have things that they are generally better at, yeah. at than men. And this idea of like, right. I mean, to me, it's ridiculous the way they say like, oh, women can do anything a man can do. That's, that's retarded. It's just not true, right? It's not true. Like, put any female UFC fighter in the ring with any right. male UFC fighter, regardless of weight class, and I will bet everything I own that the male fighter is going to win, right? However, put yeah. a, any man in a room with a group of screaming toddlers who need nourishment yeah. and nurturing, and I would bet everything yeah. I own that the average woman is going to outclass him in that, right? And there's no value judgment on either of those. It's just the fact is that we are different, and we're doing ourselves a great disservice as a species to say that we're the same. Yeah. Well, I look at, um, you know, it's interesting because I, I have children and I'm married and I look at what both my wife and I bring to the table and it's different uh, and it's complimentary. You know, my kid, mm -hmm. you know, he's grown now, but you know, when he was a kid, he, if he skinned his knee skateboarding, my wife would dote on him and, and oh, poor baby. And I'd be like, oh, great. Go back out. You know, it's a different, it's a different sort of thing. And if you're overdeveloped, um, you know, I think kids need, need, need both those things. Ideally, uh, I, I was raised by uh, a single mother. Now this is a whole different story. She was very damaged. Um, she had narcissistic personality disorder and maybe this is a good segue into truth and to some of these other things that, that I want to talk about. But, um, so yeah, I am an expert in narcissism. You know, I have a, a little bit of it myself. Thanks. Thanks to that influence. But she was, we, we all do though. Yeah, we, we, we all do. And it's certainly, you know, social media and, and you know, that's, I think it's amplified in, in a lot of ways today. Um, mm -hmm. and, but she was a very complicated person. She was on, on the one hand, she was charming and she was a great conversationalist and she was stylish and she was, um, she was just this beautiful woman who outwardly had it all together. But this was a facade. This was the narcissism, right? It always is, right? The mask. And the mask. Uh, our house was beautiful. Uh, you know, it was. But internally, there was just massive dysfunction. Mm. And um, just as a point of reference, when my sister turned 18, she left literally did not speak to my mother. My mother died at age 92. My sister literally did not speak a word to my mother until, you know, for the rest of her life. That's how much damage. My mother was like an atomic bomb of destruction in relationships. And so a lot of my journey as a man, starting as a young man, I remember, you know, it's very interesting. You, you begin having epiphanies um, as a young man, you know, and as you go through life and those epiphanies are, they're not the complete truth, but they are pointers to maybe get you going in a direction where you can ultimately become truthful and find that truth, find who you are and, and all that. And I remember even as a, um, so, so my mother had the absolute inability to have a disagreement with someone without it being emotional. Like the personal, the political was the personal, the, you know, every disagreement was an affront to her personally. And as a young boy, this was what I was modeling. 
And I remember one night I had this radio uh, on my in on, next to my bed, and at night sometimes I would scan radio stations. And I remember I was surfing AM radio, and I stumbled onto some talk radio station, and I was blown away that the host was able to have this intense political disagreement with this caller and not get upset. And that was like the first time I, I thought, oh, hmm, maybe men don't behave the way that my mother is teaching, like teaching me to behave, you know, so those small things. And so I think that much of the journey of becoming a man and it's never ending is, um, you know, having those epiphanies and, and being willing to act on those epiphanies, even though they can be very, very painful. Right. Mm. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's the, this idea uh, they speak about it in business. Um, well, it's, it's a similar idea, which is don't, don't take it personally, you know? Um, and that was just one example of as many, uh, you know, mm, mm, that's interesting. That's fascinating to me. One of the ones that I'm, one of the things that I'm coming to understand is, uh, to me, one of the primary characteristics of a man. And one of the ways I failed in my previous relationship is, uh, this is, this is a very interesting distinction, right? It's a very subtle distinction as well. You know, one of the things that we were taught or men were taught for many generations is that you should never show emotion, right? Right. Now, I actually think that that's true. I think that most of the time a man should not show emotion. He should, he should keep separation from his emotions. However, we erroneously conflated that to believe that we should never feel emotion. Right. Right. And I think right. that a lot of men, they have all this emotional energy that has to be, uh, dissipated and felt, but they don't even do that. So they, they put this wall up and then they have this inner turmoil and right. they are, they appear stoic and they appear in control and in charge. Right. But they're not like <laughs> there's this, discontent and like they're holding it all together underneath and then we swung all the way to the other end of the spectrum which is like you should just start yeah. crying at every like thing you see on tv because you've got to be a man who's in touch with his emotions right and right, right. society and woman doesn't want that right they, they yeah. don't want that like women specifically they've been telling us for years that women want men to be emotional but they don't they want you to be able to feel the emotions but not express them or to keep com your composure when you feel them and the only way to maintain your composure when you're feeling when you're experiencing emotion is to have the experience is, is to have experience of feeling emotion right you have to yeah. practice it you yeah. have to practice like getting in touch with yourself where am i feeling this in my body what kind of reactions are being elicited you have to keep practicing and then only once you've done that enough can you get to the point where someone angers you you and you're like okay, I'm angry. I'm not going to yes. be like Rick's mom and freak out and just take yeah. it personally. I'm going to realize that I can, I can separate myself from this emotion and still have a logical, reasonable discourse. Right. Yeah. That, and, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's very interesting to me that you, that you said that because that's very true. We, you know, there's a distinction between the behavioral pattern that you exhibit and the underlying emotion behind that pattern. And these are, these are distinct and they can be distinct and the recognition, because we're all pattern machines, we all behave, we all have behavioral patterns. And I think a lot of your evolution as a man 
is the recognition of behavioral patterns that are unhealthy and being able to recognize the triggers to those patterns earlier and earlier and earlier so that then they don't even develop into behavioral patterns anymore. You're almost a dispassionate observer. You're like, oh, there's a trigger here. I'm feeling this thing. And in maybe a past life, I would have expressed it behaviorally in a certain way, but I'm, I'm going to simply observe this pattern and recognize that I don't have to behave in any particular way, even though that pattern, there's a trigger there that uh, maybe would have compelled me to behave in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And that is what you've just described is the foundation of impulse control, yes. right? And if I, I like putting things on spectrums, it's just the way my mind works. If you look at the very far negative end of the, the spectrum where there's a total lack of impulse control, what is it? It's those people who are in jail for murder or rape yes. or theft, right? They yeah. could not control their yeah. impulses. And so if we look at that end of the spectrum, we must, we have to, we should realize that there must be another end of the spectrum yeah. where the peak of the human experience lies, right? Because if the worst place you can be in life is pretty much in jail, right? Amongst those types yeah. of people. And what leads to that is a lack of impulse control. Let's look at the other end of the spectrum in life, which is, you know, success, peace, yeah. harmony, friendship, all the, the place we want to go to. What are the characteristics of the person who finds his way to that side of the spectrum? It's impulse control. You can't right? have a functional so, society without impulse control. Think about, let's say, the pioneers that came across the plains of the United States back in the day, and they had to find a piece of land, and they had to till the soil, and they had to plant the seeds, and then they had to wait. I mean, talk about deferring gratification. This is a long process, mm. and... Um, you're absolutely right. Impulse control is fundamental to, to being successful or being not successful on, on the macro and the micro. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, you know, anything, as you said, anything that, that you want that requires, or, um, that's of value, of, anything worthwhile takes, know, that's, that's it takes some deferral of gratification. Of, yeah. It takes time. Exactly. What well, takes time, which requires multiple choices of deferring gratification and multiple choices of controlling your impulses. So if you want to be a jiu-jitsu black belt, you know, there are going to be many, many times over the course of the approximately 10 years that it takes to get that belt where your impulse is going to be when you get home from work, I just want to go lay in bed and watch and yeah. put on TV, right? Or play a video game, right? And you've got to control that impulse and go to the gym and then on the mats, there's going to be a bunch of times when you're going to have to try to control your impulse, impulses because someone's going to be kicking the shit out of you and you're going to get angry or frustrated or et cetera, et cetera. That's why, again, bringing it back to the beginning of the conversation, jiu-jitsu is such a great metaphor or microcosm. What, what of, tools of do you utilize, um, sort of mental tools, to get people to not give in to the impulse to sit on the couch, let's say, as just one of many possible examples? I find um, in myself that I simply shout it down in my own head. Um, and, it, you know, and this can take, you know, there can be many examples. It could be, oh, I'm having a conversation with Nick and I'm really nervous about it. In my mind, I say, shut up. Don't be stupid. He's a human being. Like, you know, I just shout down whatever that thing is. Oh, I don't feel like working out today. Shut up that you you're being a like I just shout myself down that's the tool that I use um I don't 
know if that's a good tool or a bad tool, but it works for me. So <laughs> I don't know what, what do you, you do or what do you recommend? Uh, you know, I've, I've used that in the past. It's like, come on, man, just pull yourself together. I've used that, but I've found that it's not, I don't know. I, I just find that strategy doesn't, doesn't really work for me much anymore. Like uh, I'm, I'm trying to be gentler with myself. So now I try to use logic and reason and knowing that every disciplined action usually has a multiple reward, right? I just make a very cold calculated business decision. And I know that if I take this disciplined action, I will receive a multiple reward at the end of it. Right. And I, I couple that with the understanding with, with thinking about not only the reward, but what is the consequence of not doing this, especially long-term. Right. So I, I find it difficult to work out. I enjoy working out once I get there and I'm lifting the weights or doing the push-ups. I enjoy it. But up until that point, you know, we have this tendency towards energy conservation and it's easier to be lazy. But then I start to think to myself, okay, if I miss this workout today, what's going to happen? Probably nothing today. My body's not going to change too much by tomorrow, right? But it's going to start a tendency towards missing workouts and being lazy. And in a year, you know, I'm in my 40s now. In a year, that's going to mean gaining 10 pounds and losing 5 pounds of muscle, and which will mean my metabolism will start to slow even more, which will mean... And you just play it forwards eventually, and you realize the consequences of not doing the disciplined action are usually pretty fucking horrible, right? And that usually gets me off my ass to do the thing. That yeah, I need and I'm to being do. a little hyperbolic. I don't, I'm not cruel with myself. I don't, you know, call myself a loser or anything, but I do, I do tend to just shut those. Yeah. I, I re, it's again, it's pattern recognition. I, I recognize that there is a trigger here that is telling me to do one thing when I know in my heart that I should do something else. And I'm not going to let that trigger be the, the defining, um, you know, impulse. So, uh, and I tend to just shut it, shut it off. And mm -hmm. I've gotten pretty good at simply, it's almost like a knob. Nope. I'm going to turn that off. That is not going to have power over me today. That's cool. And you, you, I think you hit, you hit upon one of the great truths, which is uh, something I say to my clients, right? When, they, when they're faced with a decision, I say to them, you know, yes, you, you know what the right thing to do is. Right? Like you, you know, like, like if you're honest with yourself and you cut through all the bullshit, you know, right? And the same way when you are at this point, like, uh, like should I, when, when you're presented with this bifurcation point between these two choices, you, you know which, which the right one is. And, and I, I want to dedicate myself to being a kind of person who, who does mm -hmm. what he believes is right, which I know that you are as well. And, right? and that's a great segue that to the topic of truth because it is so easy to lie to yourself um, as a man or, you know, as a woman, we're speaking about men primarily, but um, we live in a time, or maybe this is a timeless thing where it's very easy to build this false sense of who you are because it's a pain avoidance mechanism. Um, you know, you tell yourself you're good looking because it's hard to accept that you're not, or, you know, whatever, that's a dumb example. But in so many different ways, we, we build this false sense of who we are because it's safe, a protective cocoon. Um, being truthful is one of the hardest things you will ever do as a man. Being truthful about yourself, being willing to stand naked metaphorically in front of the mirror and look at yourself for who you really are. No better, no worse. This is who you are. 
and using that as a um, as a starting point. Okay, this is who I am. What can, where can I improve? What can I do? Because it's my contention that you cannot be in a relationship with another person, whether it's romantic or platonic or work, if you are not truthful with yourself because you're inauthentic. And the only way to have an authentic relationship is to become a relentless seeker of truth. And that's both with the person, you know, the micro and the macro, of course. Uh, and that's a difficult thing. It can be a really difficult thing. I think one of the hardest things I've done in life, and it continues to be my quest, is to seek truth and to be willing to accept the truth regardless, because the truth can be painful. But it's, it's the only... Uh... It can be pay painful, but like you said a little bit earlier, it's it's the best starting point. Yeah. It's the best starting point. It's the, it's the most solid foundation to build the 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 imagined future that you you have or the person you want to be. Like you've got to start with where you're at, right? And the only way you can start with where you're at is by being fucking honest. There's a book. Um, the the author escapes me, but it's the title is Radical Honesty by Brad mm. Blanton. Now this is a book I've never personally read. Uh, but so many people over the years have told me I need to read it. And it's one of those books that, um, I don't know if you're the same, Rick, but I, I have, a, you know, there's certain things, as I said earlier, you know yeah, what's right, yeah. right? I know that I need to read this book. I know I need to, but it, but this, the, the idea of it is so fucking terrifying to me because I know that there are certain things, there's not many, there's not many, but there's, yeah. there's a few things in my life that I'm not completely honest about. And I know that book is the last, the last step I need to take to, to really face them. Um, maybe we could both read it simultaneously and, and yeah, chat I, about it at some point. You know, and it goes back to, um, you know, Aristotle. Um, a lot of the things we believe sometimes are not the result of logic. So in, in Aristotle's worldview, there was logic dialectic, what he called dialectic, and there's rhetoric, which is emotionally charged language. And um, being willing to follow truth is more dialectic. It's tapping into the logic side and not giving in simply to the emotion of that thing um, that makes you feel a certain way or creates a certain facade or impedes certain things because there's emotion there, being willing to strip that away. Uh, and so I find it interesting that, you know, 2,500 years ago, people were still, you know, this was a, a, a thought process they had as well. These are not new ideas. This, so, so I actually think there are ideas that we need to go beyond, though, because it only tells part of the story. You know, you, yes, logic and rationale are immensely important, right? Especially if you're a man. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that women are better at is instinct, right? Yes. Understanding their instincts and, and using that like internal gut feel, right? And I don't know if you've watched uh, any of the, the newer Star Trek movies, the, the, like the reboots that started about 10 years ago. But I have not. There's this one. They're, they're excellent. I gotta, I'm not even a Star Trek fan. I've got to tell mm -hmm. you, they're, they're really good. Um, you know, you know, um, Dr. Spock, yes, right? Course. You're familiar with that character. Now he, he's a Vulcan and their particular species is pure logic and reason. They are an emotionless species, right? And in this one scene where, he, you know, he and Ca Captain Kirk developed this very powerful friendship and 
Captain Kirk is arguing with him and he's saying, Spock, when I make these decisions that save us, right, that save the ship or get us off the alien planet or, uh, you know, like just get us out of the predicament we're in, it doesn't come from logic. He says, I can't explain where it comes from. It's from something deeper than that. And that is a, an important part of the component of the story to be the whole complete man or the whole complete human being. You have to be able to use both of these tools. You don't want to just be this cold, emotionless, clinical, dispassionate human being. And you don't want to be this animalistic creature that is ruled solely by his passions and instincts. You have to, to use a combination of both of them. And that, to me, is where true yeah. wisdom lies. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, so where do you start? I'm curious, uh, as a men's coach, where, where do you start with a client? Is it just an exploratory thing or how, how do you figure out where to even, you know, find that point of entry where this is what you need? So a good coach, what they do is they, they provide clarity or they, they get the, 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 the person they're working with, they find, they help them find clarity. Then they create strategy and then finally they provide accountability. And that's all there really is to it. So if we go to the beginning, clarity. Most people don't know what they want, right? Because they're not being honest with themselves, because their minds are so busy, because um, they've never really sat down to think, what do I really want out of life? What actually makes me happy? What makes me unhappy? So the first thing I always get every client to do is, is commit to a dedicated practice of meditation. They have to sit every day for, I start them out at like, 15, 20 minutes, but we increase the time. I get them to sit and just slow their mind down and get clear on what it is that they want. And then once they've done that, we can start looking at strategies for getting them there. And once we've decided on strategies, I then hold them accountable to, to getting the things that they want or improving their life by adopting certain habits or whatever it might be. That's interesting. And again, this is, we, we could talk for another two hours on this, but I, I want to, um, maybe turn the corner because you have recently started a company that is uh, developing a nootropic, a nootropics, if you don't know what that is, it's uh, supplements that help cognitive function. And uh, I've never taken any, I've, I've been aware of lion's mane mushrooms and, and certain things and had some curiosity about that, but you've recently launched a product and maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and how that came to be. Sure. Oh, actually, uh, I'll send you some, Rick. Um... After the, the podcast, I would, I'll send you some. I appreciate yeah. it. I, I, w I would love to, to give that a try. So, uh, you know, I've always been that guy who my greatest fear in life is not fulfilling my potential. That has always been my greatest fear. And where does that fear come from? Not to derail your, what you're saying, but I'm curious about that. Man, I think it's this deep reverence for life. It's this... I am so grateful to be here and I don't want to waste this fucking thing, man. I don't want to waste it. Right. Like I, and I believe that that goes hand in hand with expressing your potential. I mean, if you, if you fulfill your potential, you will know that you've, you've used this gift wisely. Right. And so, you know, back in the day when I was a kid, I would read these bodybuilding magazines. I got into bodybuilding and I wanted to, you know, build my muscles and, you know, like supplements was the thing, right? Like you can take this yeah. pill and it can create a response or elicit a response within the organism, right? 
So that since the beginning, since a young age, the idea of changing your the organism work or one element of the organism using it, it take by taking and introducing an external supplement was very fascinating to me. Uh, and then, you know, I watched this movie called uh, Limitless with Bradley Cooper, mm-hmm. which is based off a specific uh, nootropic drug called modafinil, which was created as a wakefulness agent. And so in the movie, he, he's this guy, he's, he's not fulfilling his potential, right? And he takes this pill, this experimental drug, and everything changes for him. He becomes super successful. He writes a book that he's been putting off for years. He just, like, his life just blossoms, right? And I just thought to myself, damn, you know, if there's something like this, <laughs> I want to I wanna try it out. And a few years later in Thailand, when I was on this round-the-world trip, someone got me... Um, they got me some of this modafinil stuff and it really was, I mean, it's not like in the movie, that's a grossly exaggerated um, depiction of what it does, but man, I wrote a book in two weeks. I wrote my first book, the black Belt blueprint in two weeks when I started taking this thing and it definitely powered up my brain. There's absolutely no doubt about it. I was able to make associations better. It imp- improved, uh, improved my cognition. It just, it made me think more clearly. It made me recall more, more, um, uh, accurately, it just it was a powerful thing, and so I thought to myself, "This is great." And I used it on and off for several years, and then it started to have several very negative side effects. And uh, I, uh, I was like, I, there, there were side effects that were so bad physiologically that I could no longer deal with them. And so I started to look for alternative methods of getting the positive effects without these drawbacks. Um, and I could never really do it until I met a friend named Shane Eatner, who uh, he'd been formulating his own nootropic stack for years. And I tried it and I, I, I wouldn't say I got exactly the same effect as modafinil, but I got pretty close to it. Uh, and so I thought to myself, you know, like I want to, I want to take this further. And so Shane and I formulated our substance, which is called um, BDNF, the best damn nootropic formula. And we bottled it and we started selling it and the rest is history. You know, it's funny, we're we're told that we use a small percentage of our brain power and I've always had a poor memory and it annoys me. You know, I can learn a fact or something or someone's name and then it eludes me. And so uh, I'm curious to try it. It it sounds like a really, um, you know, it's an interesting field of study. We know so little about the brain and is there a way to enhance our cognitive capability? There certainly must be. And so maybe you're onto something here. So the website is 100%, the word percent, P-E-R-C-E-N-T, mm-hmm. dot health. Is that correct? correct? 100% dot health. So, yeah, I'm, I'm in. I'm going to try cool. it. I'm excited to hear your <laughs> feedback, Rick. If you're already a smart guy, so it's... <laughs> God knows what's going to happen after this. You're going to turn into an evil genius, man. <laughs> hopefully a benevolent a kind and benevolent genius (laughs) so last question and then i want to um ask about you know where people can find you online and 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 get all that but you told a story of getting into a fight in uh south africa when you were a young boy in school and it was just you you went to this you, you, you uh, went to fight this guy and the whole school showed up to watch. Everybody was rooting for the other guy I remember it. and not you. Yeah. B- 
but you never said who won the fight. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I got into quite a few fights. That particular one, I remember clearly, it was this kid. He was a popular kid. His name was Grant Pitt. And um, I, I, to this day, I look back at that fight as a draw because it ended by both of us just being so exhausted we couldn't do anything. Right? We're just like, yeah. you know, when you don't really know how to fight. He yeah. kneed me in the side of the head. He got this perfect knee, which caused the whole side of my face to go black. But I threw him with a, I'd done a little bit of judo, so I threw him with a, um, almost like a modified hip throw with my arm around his head yeah. and had him in a headlock for a long time. So to this day, Koshiguruma. I look back at that as, yeah, yeah. Say the name again. Koshiguruma, the Koshiguruma. Head, head and arm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Head and arm throw. Yeah. So um, to this day, I put it down as uh, a draw. But it was an emotional victory, or it was certainly a victory for you because it was you against the world. You know, I always say, as a kid, you know, I got into a lot of fights, right? And I won some and I lost some. But the thing I'm really proud of myself for is I never backed down, right? Like, yeah, if, yeah. The kid, if the kid insulted me or said something about my family or whatever, I was like, fuck it, bro, we're going to fight. And sometimes I lost and sometimes I won, but I always fought. Yeah. Yeah, that's very powerful. I, I was just curious about that because I heard that story. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it was the cliffhanger. Where, where yeah. does he tell the rest of the story? <laughs> I, I always think to myself, I'd love to see some of these kids these days. Like, and just, you know, a part of me thinks, you know, I'd like slap his face and be like, what are you going to do now, punk? But another part of me thinks like it would be cool to actually become friendly with, with them. These, these dudes I had battles with. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe they had some of the same epiphanies as you did, and maybe they're yeah. in such a different place now as an adult that <laughs> that you know that childhood conflict is, is meaningless. You know, sure, that'd be pretty cool. So, um, for our viewers, where, where can they find you online if they're interested in your counseling, your, your coaching, that sort of thing? Um, you know, where do you? Learn? I think uh, the best thing for anyone to do, if, if like anything I've said has resonated with them, um, is go get a free copy of my book, Aligned. And you can get that if you go to liberationmentor.com forward slash book, and you can get a free copy right there. That's the best place to start. Mm -hmm. Well, fantastic, Nick. Um, I've been wanting to get to know you for a long time. And again, we lurk in some of the same corners of the internet, but we seem to mm -hmm. just never quite make that connection. So this has been well, fantastic. We, we did it this time. Um, yeah. You're a fascinating guy. And I'm sure over a glass of wine, we could spend hours going deep into some of these rabbit holes. And I really look forward imagine, to it. Imagine what we could do over a cup of ayahuasca. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, maybe you're the guy to, maybe you're the guy to talk me off the ledge and, and, and take me there. But uh, that, that would be interesting for sure. Cool, Rick. Really, my, the honor was all mine. Thank yeah, you so no, much. Yeah, no, no. Likewise, Nick. Um, and I, I'm sure our... Our, our, you know, our viewers, our listeners are going to love this episode because, again, you're a fascinating guy. And I, I thank you very much for, for being on the show today. Thank you. My brother. All right. Take care.